Hi guys, it's Amber here. I just want to let you know that the Pro Se Podcast is now available on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. And we'd love to ask you a favor. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review. They really do matter because they help other people find the show. And now, this week's episode. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. The U.S. Supreme Court this week struck down federal restrictions on sports gambling, opening the door for states to legalize betting. Joining us a little later in the show is Zach Zagger, senior sports reporter, who will give us the line on how the landscape for gambling may change in the coming months. And stick around to the end of the show when we discuss a $4 million lawsuit filed by a woman who injured herself after taking a tumble out of some toilets set up for the White House Easter egg roll. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Already laughing about our offbeat. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean. <laughs> we're going to get to that later. Don't want to step on any of the segments Tumbles. here. Before we get into the meat of the show, I, of course, wanted to ask you guys about the most divisive legal case that uh, burst on the scene this week, uh, the matter of uh, Laurel v. Yanny. You know, does anyone? That's have one a take? of those things where I'm on Twitter a lot, and there and there are things where you and you're, me both. You're, you're busy, <laughs> or like you just don't care, and it's sort of like things in your vision that are in the periphery. Like, like yeah, I, I I know what those words. I know those words are a thing that people have been discussing, but I've I've put zero effort into figuring oh, it out. Okay, well, see, there I was. Uh, pretending to work, I mean, working. Sure, Amber, yeah. uh, uh, take it all back. And I was just like, God, why isn't there any more content for me right now? <laughs> like, why? Why uh, am I sitting here contentless? Catch everybody up on what this is. Oh well, I mean, there's a there's a, it's 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 one of these things. I don't know. It's sort of meant to hijack online discourse for a day or two. It's an audio file of a voice saying what, depending on your frequency, whatever you're keyed into, could be saying the name Laurel. Or the word Yanny, which what? I guess is a which name. Isn't a word? So I have not actually. Oh, God. Well, listened. The, okay. I figured I mean, you guys. I, I knew about it. I'm in well, the same boat as Bill. Like, I was aware that this was a thing. Yeah. But I haven't actually listened. Um, because it's easier when it was the, is the dress gold and, or is the dress blue? You know, it's funny. Because you, it was just a picture you looked at? It's funny you mentioned that because I, I sent it to a friend of mine who actually works at BuzzFeed. And all he, and all he had to say was, hmm. Always chasing that dress. <laughs> it's gonna be. Well, they're just trying to catch lightning in a bottle with the yeah. dress again. The timer has started for when it's gonna be co-opted by like, uh, I don't know, Delta Airlines oh, for like some oh, sort of viral. Of course. Well, the, the Air Force uh, took it. Oh yeah, took a hack I did this see morning, that. But That's uh, yeah, ugly stuff. Uh, anyway, the winner in the legal case, of course, is is content. As Let's I said, talk about. So. <laughs> Other winners here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That good segue. Other, I liked it. Other contentious litigation. I think we would all agree that Apple, for the most part, has been a winner in its like decade long battle with Samsung over smartphones. As we're recording here and my iPhone is sitting on the table in front of us. Yeah. Sure. But they're back in court this week trying to win a little bit more. Okay. So uh, the two are battling over how much Samsung should have to pay for over design patents. Mm-hmm. Um, and. It's kind of funny when you read the story. They're like a billion dollars apart yeah, from where they right. think this should be. So yeah, you know it's funny. We were when we were talking at the uh, production meeting yesterday. We've been doing the podcast for like almost a year, and we somehow never talked about this decade long legal saga. So yeah. let's still let's zoom out for a second. It's arguably Law 360's biggest story. I think over so. The years. Yeah, we've written. I I actually searched today. We've written thirteen hundred stories about it. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> over a seven year period. I mean, you and I were also talking that I've been at Law 360 for over four years, and this has. Been been the whole time I've been oh, here. Yeah. We've been writing about this the whole time. So let's rewind a little bit. Yeah. Apple sued 
Samsung back in 2011, claiming they had like, there is a lot of moving parts here, but you can sort of distill it down to we invented the smartphone. Mm -hmm. And when you created the Galaxy, you essentially just ripped off the Mm -hmm. iPhone. Yeah. Everything about the the iPhone, like we sort of take it for granted now, but it was new when it came out in 2007. And their claim is that you've infringed a whole bunch of patents when you created a phone that looked and operated pretty similarly. Okay. So they've sued each other around the world in all sorts of different jurisdictions. They've gone to trial in the U.S. like four different times over this. Hundreds of millions uh, have been awarded to Apple over the years. They've gone up and down through the appeals courts, a couple trips to the Supreme Court. Yeah, right. You know, here, here or there, give or take. Right. <laughs> but anyway. And what's like the central like? Well, back thing, in 2016, yeah. uh, there was a $400 million award that was tossed out by the Supreme Court. Um, and that sort of sets us on on pace for, for today. Okay. And like they're they are arguing, like you, you already kind of hinted at it. It's like sort of core elements of what we now understand to be a smartphone. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, let's lay, lay that out for So us. just for the layman, there's utility patents and design patents. Utility patents covers like a, mach- like a function of a Operability. machine. Right, exactly. <laughs> design patents cover sort of the aesthetics of it, what the it ornamentation. Like. So we're talking about design patents here. There's a few utility patents, but this is really about the design of the phone. Mm-hmm. The, the silver rim, where the icons are, the round edges, glass face, that, oh, okay. stuff like right. that. So back in 2016, like I said, um, in it was actually the first design patent case in like 120 years of the statute existing oh, yeah. to get to the Supreme Court. Um, this case got there. Apple had won $400 million in damages from Samsung for the infringement of their designs. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court said, basically, you applied this really overly simplistic thing. When you looked at the statute, you said you get damages from all of the money that Samsung made on the entire phone rather than looking at like the individual parts of the phone that infringe the design. Right, right, right. Do it over. Okay, So they sent it back down, (laughs) and that's what gets us to where we are now, um, which is a new trial over how much... Uh, Samsung should have to pay. Okay, so if we were at 400 million before, and now they're fighting about with the whole phone yeah, with the whole theory. Thing. Yeah. yeah, so now it's a little part, so it's got to be less than that. One would think, <laughs> but that's not it's exactly not what right. happened. So the Supreme Court case, I actually wrote. I'm not the patent guy, but I think the patent folks were both out that day. So I wrote a big story about it back when that ruling came out about how like the ruling is not particularly clear. Like it said that you did it wrong, and your interpretation was overly simplistic but they didn't really lay down how you're supposed to do it. So there's a lot of gray area here. Right. So you're such a renaissance man. I mean, man. of course. <laughs> I've always said that about you. Thanks, man. Well, and of course we're talking about the biggest selling smartphones out there. Yes. So, yeah. so it's not like, so, the, it's not like the benchmark is going to be low. Exactly. Right. So, um, they went to trial this week and <laughs> in opening arguments, the, uh, so Apple is represented by Bill Lee of Wilmer Hale. Mm-hmm. Uh, no slouch when it comes to yeah, patent yeah. litigators. And he, he goes out there and tells the jurors that Samsung owes over a billion dollars for these three <laughs> Not design holding patents. back. Okay. Um, the, the idea is that that's based on the total revenue that Samsung made off the phone. Um, uh, Dorothy Atkins has been covering the trial, will be covering the trial, so everybody should go check out her coverage. But um, the power quote was, quote, is it a lot of money? It is. Sure. <laughs> That's what Lee said. But uh, but the idea was Samsung sold millions and millions of these phones and that, quote, design is what tied it all together. So th- and there's sure a lot of cheap. value in the design of <laughs> yeah. what of what they, 
they took. Makes sense. And I mean, making that argument that they sold a lot of phones and this is so ubiquitous, this is actually how I sell reporters that are new to the team (laughs) on being excited about writing patent cases. I always say like, hey, so, you know, pull out the phone in your pocket. You're going to be writing about this technology that everyone has. and. Everyone does have these. I explain that to people all the time where I'm like, it is arguably more relatable to write about copyrights and trademarks Mm because everyone knows all about music and brands and everything else. But there is way more money in the patent side. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of money, you know, we've we've already put forth the Apple number. What did the Samsung uh, attorneys have? So similarly well-represented, John Quinn of Quinn Emanuel uh, was out there. Names on the freaking building. The very first (laughs) one. Uh, So he was arguing that uh, their figure was slightly lower. $28 $28 million. Oh, yeah. We're from, so from really, $1 billion really to $28 million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're, um, we're pretty close on these. Uh, so they it, he he basically said, like, if you're following the Supreme Court ruling, you have to the damages have to be limited to the specific components. Pretty much exactly what you think he would say. Um, so it will be fun to watch these two. Uh, uh, blockbuster it's, attorneys, blockbuster companies. Yeah. It's um, like a heavyweight fight of patent law. Yeah, and it's in, you know, it's it's in Silicon Valley. It's, yep. uh, it's a big trial to watch. So go check out Dorothy's coverage. We'll be covering it until we get a verdict. Sounds good. Good. So shifting gears here just a bit, um, guys, I've I've literally lost track of the number of times uh, on the on the show we've talked about, you know, gender discrimination in big law or in any industry, really. And you've like lost track of my tears on the podcast. Well, that's the thing. It's like and, and every time, no matter what the story is, we're always kind of like we talk about ways that things might improve, mm-hmm. but it's not always extremely clear and it's kind of amorphous. And this week we've got an interesting development, not no kind of silver bullet or anything, but uh, an interesting answer as to how things might progress this way. Um, from the academic community, there were over 50 law schools that banded together this week, basically um, demanding answers from uh, various big law firms um, about the use of uh, things we've talked about so often, arbitration agreements and non-disclosure agreements uh, for incoming associates and summer associates. So one of our senior reporters here, Natalie Rodriguez, right. reached out to a lot of firms after we after Law 360 first covered that story of maybe a month ago about yeah. these non-disclosure agreements and asked people who was using them, what, you know, what, like which firms did what. And didn't get a whole lot of responses. I think so I'm interested to hear what you know what what is for 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 point of reference. I think we I I think we reached out to like a hundred of the biggest firms and got like 18 responses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so and so so bearing that in mind, uh, this week, uh, as I said, um, it, it was 50 when we reported the story. I talked to the Yale spokeswoman. It's actually 54 law schools now, um, including like I said, Yale, Harvard, Stanford, like the heavyweights of this. Um, They've basically sent out this survey. It's a letter to um, all the big law firms who recruit for summer associates on their campuses. And it's a survey that basically asks, do you use, uh, do do you require associates and summer associates to sign NDAs and arbitration clauses that cover things like, you know, uh, like gender discrimination or workplace misconduct? And just to be clear, I mean, walk us through why this is a touchy issue. Well, when Natalie Rodriguez was on the was on the show, whatever that was, a month or so ago, um, as you already mentioned, we talked about how um, there was an uproar over um, one of these arbitration agreements uh, that emerged from Munger Tolls, uh, which is, of course, a big law titan. And I think it was actually, I think it was a, wasn't it a, it was a law school professor, it right? Was, who posted it on Twitter. It, it was. Twitter. He posted on Twitter and got a whole bunch of backlash because as we've discussed ad nauseum, uh, but in case you forgot, I mean, both NDAs and arbitration agreements can be used, you know, to sort of stifle or scuttle 
complaints of, you know, misconduct in the workplace. It sort of creates a generally, you know, sort of, or rather it can create kind of an intimidating atmosphere for complaining yeah. about they, things. They featured heavily in the, in the, the whole Weinstein. Yeah. Song. There yeah. it's, it's, it's a huge part of the issue. And, and so, so when this yeah. all came out, um, the firm quickly backtracked. Right. I mean, it quickly, was almost immediately. Yeah. And the key there, of course, is transparency. We're not talking about someone who was trying to lodge, you know, no one tried to like knock down the legality of the arbitration. Mm-hmm. And I mean, people have tried to do that in various other, you know, spools of litigation. Right. Um, but it's funny that just the mere fact that they existed was enough for Munger Tolls to back down. And yeah, that's sort of- Yeah, it's like we've come into this Me Too moment. Yeah, And so yeah. it's really just the climate has changed so much about all of this. And, and so- that was, you know, kind of a one-off, but then I think uh, Oric soon followed and, mm-hmm. and, and repealed its own uh, arbitration agreement NDA thing, uh, Skadden. Uh, and now you can see uh, these law schools are kind of following in that, you know, on that logical path and saying like, well, how many of you are actually doing this? Right. Um, and that's and that's sort of what that's what they want to know. And just to just sort of be clear about it. um, they're sort of asking not just about the NDAs um, or arbitration agreements that that's just it's not just like a binary yes or no thing they're also asking some broader questions about how does your firm deal with sexual harassment complaints or how does it how do you deal with you know when someone comes to you and says oh i've been experiencing some misconduct and then it asks questions about how um you know how you communicate that to the employees so it takes more of a top down type of thing and so this basically just will be a tool that all the students can use they can look at what these responses are and make smart choices for themselves about what firms to to go for. That's exactly right. It's not, um, there was, I, I had a little bit of confusion. It's like, I mean, like I said, they're sending it out to, um, don't have an exact number, but to, you know, any big law firm who has ever recruited on their right. on their campus. And basically, you know, they have until June 1st to submit the answers. And then when that's done, they're going to take the answers and just submit them to the students. And it's like, okay, you know, firm X says yes, says no, didn't respond. And, and then like you say, give that to the students. Well, it makes sense. I mean, if you're recruiting the top the top next class of, of associates. I mean, you're telling people how much you'll make. You're telling people what kind of benefits you're getting. You're telling what all the other perks, an important part of that information is whether you're using these kind of agreements. Yeah. It should all be out there. It's a sort of a, yeah, it's an interesting kind of grassrootsy bottom up type of uh, way to get at the problem that, as we said, began with uh, one curious, uh, academic posting one of these things on Twitter. And now here we are as sort of like a, a collective movement from the academic community. It's very interesting. It was hard to miss the news. The U.S. Supreme Court this week struck down federal restrictions on sports gambling, clearing the way for states across the country to legalize betting. The ruling capped off a six-year battle with the NCAA and other sports leagues and sets the stage for a multi-billion dollar industry. Here to discuss the ruling and the complicated next steps is Zach Zagger, senior sports reporter at Law360. Welcome, Zach. Hi, thanks for having me again. So, Zach, I mean, headlines across the country are telling me that sports betting is legal now. So I'm going to start you off with the most important question. I want to bet. I'm thinking over, under, and Warriors Rockets tonight. What do you think I should do? And more importantly, where can I do it? 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. You might want to hold your horses there, Alex. Okay. So, <laughs> the, the decision this uh, week by the Supreme Court, it didn't legalize sports betting in the United States. Uh, okay. All it did was it struck down a federal law that had prohibited states from being able to pass laws to legalize sports betting uh, within their borders. So now they can, it, it sort of freed up the states to pass their own gambling legalization law. So Zach, I never understand what we're talking about with sports cases. So it's always good to have you here to really spell it out for me. And I don't really know anything about this law. Can you tell me about it and why it was passed? I'll actually take this one. The over-under is when you bet the combined total <laughs> of the points between the teams playing. Sorry, sorry. The, uh, the law in question, Zach. Well, the law at issue is called the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, or PASPA. Uh, the law was passed in 1992 with the backing of the professional sports leagues uh, to stop sports betting. And, and what it did was it didn't criminalize sports gambling in the United States, but it restricted states from being able to pass laws to allow mm-hmm. sports betting in their borders. Uh, and that became a problem, you know, fast forward two decades later when New Jersey wanted to pass sports betting legislation, uh, which led to, you know, a series of litigation that culminated in Monday's opinion. So now we've reached Monday's ruling and we know the court struck down this this law, PASPA, but explain why they did that. What did they say about this law that 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 was the reason why they struck it down? Well, what happened here was Congress, when they passed PASPA back in 1992, they, they wanted to stop or the spread of sports gambling across the United States. But instead of passing a law that directly said that it ha- had to stop or criminalizing the activity, uh, they did this weird end runaround where mm-hmm. they told states that they cannot authorize or legalize sports gambling uh, within their own borders. And the justices had a problem with that. They mm-hmm. found that to be unconstitutional, that it was an overstep by Congress to restrict the states in that manner. They were telling states what they, they – they were sort of stepping into what states are supposed to be making decisions on. Yeah, it's a weedy thing a little bit. Right. It's like it, it says like you can't pass laws legalizing this <laughs> thing instead of like like we say, just making a law that makes it illegal. Yeah, because yeah. you would normally expect the, f- the Congress to just federally criminalize something they don't like, but – well, sports sports betting aside, I mean, I'm just glad we avoided, uh, you know, an, an, like another civil war over a thorny <laughs> states' rights issue. So, <laughs> so you sort of explained in your stories on this that the court sort of had multiple options for how they could have done this, how they could have struck down this law, and they went for the more sort of expansive version, right? They the the, the bolder option. Right. Uh, Some experts had been optimistic that New Jersey would prevail in this case, but they thought that what would happen was the court would take a scalpel to the law and allow New Jersey to have sports betting, but not necessarily open it up across the country. Mm -hmm. Instead, the the justices here struck down the entire law and really opened the door for states to pass all different types of sports betting regimes uh, based on how they want to do it. So are there any other laws that might prohibit some of those schemes that they're thinking about? Yeah, there's some questions that other federal laws may come into play, in particular the Wire Act, which prohibits uh, communications over the wires uh, in, in, connected with sports gambling. But uh, this this decision kind of opens the door and, and may allow uh, sports betting within states' borders, even uh, online or in mobile platforms. And so th- that, that kind of gets us into the really kind of meat of the stuff. The legal stuff is interesting, but it's behind us now. And I think what people are really interested to know is what's going to come next. I mean, like you say, states are free to do what they want now. 
Um, but is, I mean, do we have a picture of the landscape here? Who might go first? New Jersey, of course, is in this case. But what does the, the rest of the landscape look like? Well, there are over 30 states that have already considered some type of sports betting legislation in anticipation of uh, this, this decision by the Supreme Court. Uh, those range from New Jersey, which is way out ahead on this. Right. And in fact, Monmouth Park has said that they want to start sports betting by the end of this month. It, perhaps mm. in wow, time for fast. the NBA Finals there for you, Alex. <laughs> yeah, nice. That's uh, good. But uh, other states are farther behind. Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Mississippi have bills in place. They could have sports betting potentially by the NFL season. Other states are less far along. But within the next couple of years, you could see sports betting in a number of states across but the now, country. To be clear here, if a state wants to, to keep sports betting illegal, they're more than entitled to do so, right? Correct. Uh, they can keep it illegal. Uh, and Congress may still step in here and take another stab at uh, regulating or criminalizing sports betting. But it's hard to say whether or not there's really an appetite on, in Congress to do that. Where are the leagues at on this, Zach? I mean, like, I'm, I know well, there, well, there, there were sort of statements that came out. It's a great it, question because, I mean, they were the ones who fought this all along. And, point, and, and, and it makes sense that they were opposed to this, right? I mean, they're worried about, about the, the game sort of getting screwed up by people betting on it. Well, the leagues are worried primarily about the integrity of their games, yeah. and that's a reasonable you know, worry for them because that's their whole business. Uh, but there hasn't been a consensus among the leagues on yeah. what to do here. Uh, you've seen the NFL be very anti-sports betting, and in fact, they put out a statement saying that they want to work towards a congressional approach to this to perhaps regulate it or, or I don't know, prohibit it even. Mm-hmm. Uh, Meanwhile, the National Basketball Association and Major League Baseball are on the opposite end, and they've kind of come to terms with the fact that we're going to have sports betting in the United States, and they've been going to state legislatures yeah. this year and lobbying them for bills uh, that you know have provisions in them that they want to see, limits on what kinds of bets can, that can right. be made, and also integrity fees that would uh, you know send some of the revenue to the leagues directly. What about, the, go ahead. Well, what about the players' associations? I have to think that they're involved in this process too, and they want a seat at the table in terms of the way players' likenesses are used, the way players are affected by by gambling on the game. Definitely, and uh, I think the players' unions unions have started to think about this, but. Uh, at least some of them, uh, the Major League Baseball Players Association, is, are, are optim- is optimistic that this could benefit sports. It could raise overall interest, which could make hmm. uh, players' values even higher. Well, is that even complicated more because of the amateurism issues that we've talked about with you on this podcast? Because you have college athletes who are not getting paid for participating. Yeah. Well, the NCAA is the outlier here, and they've been against sports betting all along, and like you said, they, college sports athletes are amateurs. They're not paid, so they're far more susceptible to corruption. Uh, those types of schemes you hear about where, you know, bookies will go and they'll try to tell a player to, you know, shave some points here and there. Sure. You know, they're much more susceptible than that than multi-million dollar athletes who are making money and to really depend on integrity of the games to make their money. Well, so, and, it, and it, it, it just, it draws out as more glaring the things that we... right talked about the last time that yeah. now not only is there this this <laughs> this the the schools themselves are making billions of dollars off of the people players, in the, the people in the crowd <laughs> tons of people other their own their own classmates can make money gambling on the game but the but kids who are out there on their labor <laughs> aren't getting paid that's well, a strange could, irony and there's also talk that some of the colleges the major universities will get a cut of this just right. like elite <laughs> yeah. like well, for, like in amber's home state of west virginia uh, wvu and marshall b- both want to get a cut of the right of course they do revenue. Yeah. yeah and could we see um something here where states take into account this weird situation we have with amateurism and they maybe pass 
laws saying that uh, professional betting on professional games is allowed, but not on college athletics? Most definitely. And that's going to be an issue that's going to be hashed out in state legislatures and whether or not to open up college sports to sports betting. Uh, In fact, New Jersey, even though they're going to allow sports betting at their casinos and racetracks now, uh, they d- prohibit sports betting on game uh, college sports games that happen. Hmm. I'm sorry, on local college sports teams right. like Rutgers right. and Seton Hall. You know, Zach, I just want to know who whoever will think of the bookies. That's that's <laughs> what I want to know. What's going to happen to Tommy and Frankie laying out the envelopes on the bar on a Sunday afternoon? Are these people like we're we're, we're just uh, it's like the dinosaurs of the past? I, yeah, Joey sad. Books in Poughkeepsie is yeah. very upset right now. <laughs> My old friend Frankie Sausages, who we, last last time we talked about this. Well, and that's a big hope of the gambling industry. Oh, they're gonna, right, yes. They're going to pull that money from underground and offshore channels to yeah. above board channels, and then uh, states will be able to tax it. And this, however, yeah. I mean, the, the thing about the local bookies is they're still going to be there um, because one they allow you to bet on credit a lot of times and <laughs> yes. you know the betters usually don't report that on their irs sure. filing. Sure. So and, 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 i mean there's still going to be a a, a, well, a market there. it's like mar- it's there's a lot of echoes here with marijuana that that you're in this this sort of suddenly legalizing world i and know yeah there's still going to be illegal versions of it in within the legal context i was joking around when i asked the question that way but i think it gets to the point i mean you've written about it everyone who writes about this issue writes about it i mean it's impossible to estimate exactly but some people think it's like 150 billion dollars <laughs> right wow. worth of money's gambling on there's no way to know for sure of course but like it's i mean like you say it was always it was always around and now what the idea is you know we get some architecture right and 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 that is the amount that the american gaming association has put forth it's hard to say whether or not that is that size and uh, but uh you know you're still going to have that underground market and and i think states though may be more incentivized now to 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 crack down on these bookies so because they're going to be able to make money off of the above board betting so you you may see some of that but uh but it's, see, a, crack, it's, a, it's still crack, an open yeah. question of how much money from these underground from the underground market is going to come up. Yeah, I mean, in, the, board. in in this context, like crackdown used to be like you know you might get arrested or something, but now it might, means you might like you know get regulated or something, right? Yeah, there's going to be a number of issues that are going to play out, and I'm sure I'm going to be writing about this a lot over the next weeks and months. So. A lot of action, we might yeah. say, uh, in the uh, in the gaming <laughs> parlance. So uh, yeah, we'll keep our eyes on it. Thanks for talking us through it, Zach. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Zach. Dinner show is something offbeat, and guys, I just really couldn't pass up this headline: White House toilet tumble suit heads to mediation. Okay, mm. uh, I mean, let's let's dive in. <laughs> sure. To the toilet. You want yeah. wondering what a toilet tumble is? Sure. I mean, yeah. Is that a term of art? Or? Uh, it should be. It's <laughs> okay. not, but should be. Okay. Uh, so here's what happened: There was a Virginia woman who has sued the federal government and a portable toilet company for four million dollars. Over a broken foot. Well, wait a minute. I mean, some would say that the federal government uh, is a toilet company, uh, but uh, I don't mean wow. editorialize. Alex, look, we've tried to keep politics. Some out of this. would say that's a classic couch. Sorry. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So this woman, um, she sustained this injury in 2012. She was attending the White House Easter egg roll. You guys see that on TV every year. It's yeah. A, yep, a very yep. well attended event at the White House. And um, we're talking about it today because it got shifted to mediation, but really just so I can tell this woman's tale. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, I mean, go ahead. (laughs) 
So I have questions, but let's, sure, sure. But uh, let's I have more. arguably too many questions. <laughs> Pro- probably. Well, have you guys ever seen those sort of? Um, they're not porta potties like the little things. They're like a trailer that has like stairs you walk up into. Sure, oh, they're fancy yes. porta potties. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So apparently, how the other how I mean, the other half poops. I mean, it's the Easter egg roll on the slab. We're not gonna. Yeah. So it's a classy occasion. Yeah. So some of these were set up, and there are sets of stairs that lead up to them. So this woman went to the bathroom, and as she was coming down the stairs, she slipped okay. and sustained this injury. I like things about this, though, about how a lawyer describes what happened. Sure. Yeah. I would like to read yeah. this quote. Plaintiff fell on the second step. Her foot slipped and she slammed down. The step was very slippery and did not provide traction. Although there was water to wash your hands, there were no towels or dryers available to dry your hands. Oh, man. As a result, water collected on the stairs, <laughs> making them slick. <laughs> It's wow. good. I mean, it's yeah. very, it's very forensic. That's um, what. That's how you learn to write in law school, guys. Yeah, it's good. That's basically what it is. Uh, I mean, we've all gotten too drunk at Easter. Like, I mean, <laughs> we've been there. You're, sure, you're you're eating the ham. It's thirsty. You know, you got to do something. Yeah. So the other thing that sort of catches your eye about this one, it's a four million dollar claim. So it's <laughs> no small potatoes for a foot injury. So just to let everybody know, <laughs> four million dollar foot injury. Well, yeah, I guess... well, no, because people, you know, you think back to like when it was the McDonald's scalding case years ago, and people were outraged at the price the yeah. tag attached to that. So just to make it clear, this woman's injuries were pretty bad. Her foot had to be, um, she had to have surgery, a bunch of pins inserted. Um, lost wages and medical costs and okay. you know mental pain. She's suing for all of that. Although, when you do hear the word toilet tumble, <laughs> I was picturing worse, just to be clear. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you hear about a personal injury lawsuit involving a, a, a tumble from a toilet, I don't know. I, I was expecting gorier details. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean... I like it, not to laugh too much about it wasn't my really foot terrible, got mangled up. so, you know, we well, just try to keep it light, guys. So, okay, it's so it's in, yeah, well, and then we can go out on this, guys. So it was the White House, it was, where, where, it was the White House? Easter, Easter girl. girl. How about this? Shite house. Wow. That's wow. good. <clears throat> I mean... Anything else? Four out of ten. Well, okay, all right. I'm not going to leave it there because I did not like that. Oh, so. all right, well, <laughs> go on. So I just, <laughs> the thing that really caught my eye about this one, the, the real reason I wanted to talk about it was that to me, it was like, there's a lot of people listening right now that are attorneys or, in, or law students in school, and this was like my 1L torts class just came to life. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's just... Your you 1L can, toots class. Yeah, definitely that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the woman says that the toilet manufacturer and the government were negligent because they didn't have the towels in the dryer, like the quote that I read. Right. And, and that means the injury was foreseeable. That's classic tort stuff. Um, but the government says that it was her own negligence and she assumed the risk and that's approximate cause. Wow. Guys, this is... If you want to know how this all turns out, just look in your blue book. That's where the answer to this case is. I thought of a better one. Okay. Executive stench. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Instead of branch, that's where we're at? Yeah. Okay. Uh, shoot. There's probably... Uh, nope. Nope. Guys, we're in. I was trying to now. do like ex- excrementative nope, branch. Nope. nope. We're okay. stopping now. Okay. That's it. That's the know. end of all okay. of this. Okay. Well. West stink. <laughs> that's fine. We have lots of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests, Zach Zagger, and contributing reporters, Kyle Janner, RJ Vote, and Dorothy Atkins. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to learn more about anything we talked about this week, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. 
Thanks, and join us again next week. When she got out of the bathroom, I was nose garden in the rose garden. (laughs) That's great. Kind of a visual one I'm holding. That is holding my Uh, fingers over my nose. It's always good for a podcast when you Harry S. Pullman. (laughs) No, 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 no. (laughs) Yes. Shut it down. Let's go home. Oh.